Hello and welcome to these Project ECHO Westwick PHN Hub COVID-19 Pandemic Response Series Didactic Recordings. This was recorded on Thursday the 27th of August 2020 and is Series 2, Session 7. So good morning and thank you for joining us as we kick off our next mini-series titled Housing, Crowding and Caring, Primary Care's Role in Health Behaviour Change Part 1. Over this second lockdown and deep into our true first wave, we've played an increasing role in providing education, information and advice to our community about how to minimise the spread of coronavirus. We've had to get our head around this novel virus on many levels, at the individual level and how it exploits certain social practices and behaviours. GPs, nurses and practice managers have played an important role in educating ourselves, one another and our patients about how to stay safe and keep others safe. Time and time again, we've passed on new information and practices and as a group, we've played an enormous role in building the health literacy in our community in an attempt to influence and change behaviours so as to enable us to adapt in this pandemic. In this part of the series, our aims are to build an understanding of transmission dynamics and how this novel virus exploits our ways of living, working and relating. We'll spend time this morning building our understanding of how we in primary care can best prepare residents, care workers and families to support some of our most vulnerable members of our community in the disability care sector. And we'll consider important prevention, testing and isolation pathways and processes for this sector. But before we begin these discussions, I'd like to open the meeting with an acknowledgement to country. My apologies, we can't bring you the audio for this section, but we have recorded Miss Jackie Pierce, disability sector advocate, providing an overview of housing and governance and supports available within the disability sector. So thanks, Bianca. And um, I think it's it's terrific that we're focusing on this today, um, particularly given what Deb said about transmission dynamics within households, because people with a disability are in that shared living environment and they also require that very up-close contact um, to support them with their daily care needs. So um, we're very much looking at um, that issue within the shared living arrangements. So given that the media doesn't understand the difference between the different disability types, I thought it was worth touching on that because the media release from the Andrews government on Friday indicated that we had 62 active cases in disability residential services and of those active cases 49 were in fact staff so the vast majority are staff um, cases of COVID but the issue we have is that most people don't know the differences and particularly the media doesn't and that causes some concern and issues on the ground so if we just quickly work through the um, slide we've got up here specialist disability accommodation in old language uh, group home CRU shared supported accommodation generally accommodate between four and six people with a disability uh, with 24-hour support on site. There's about 6,500 of those um, people residing in those houses, around about 800 houses across the nation. So those houses generally, um, the legislative framework that surrounds them is the NDIS Act at a federal level and the State Disability Services Act of 2006. And the National Quality and Safeguard Commission is the... Um, body that provides the oversight for those and registers and monitors the registration of SDAs. They're predominantly run by the not-for-profit disability service sector. So organisations like GenU in Ballarat, we're talking McCallum, Gateways in Geelong, down in Portland, there's a 
a group of families that came together called the Portland Lighthouse um, within Hamilton. It's the Stay Residential Services. So there's a whole range of them across the state. DHHS used to run a whole lot of these houses, but they've divested themselves of that responsibility. They own the bricks and mortar still, the properties, but the supports in them have been tendered out to Scope and what was called the Tipping Foundation. Most people now know that as a rumour. Um, so we've got lots and lots of people with a disability living in those environments. Then the next main uh, provider of, of disability accommodation is actually residential aged care facilities. So we've got between six and 7,000 young people under 65 living in residential aged care, old language nursing homes, and the legislative framework is the Aged Care Act. The next... Um, type of disability housing um, is supported residential services, old language boarding houses, hostels. They are under state legislation, the State SRS Proprietors Act and the state, um, the SRS regulations and DHHS themselves registers and monitors those SRSs. They're generally run by private for-profit organisations and the pension-only level SRSs is where we see most people with a disability who live. Um, they're under 60 and they are folks with, with low incomes and generally um, lots of additional needs. So mental health, acquired brain injury, drug and alcohol, homelessness issues and or potentially justice issues. So that's where the majority of the outbreak so far of COVID have been when the media talks about disability residential, not in our small-scale four- to six-bedroom specialist disability accommodation houses. And the last sort of uh, group living situation, they're rooming houses. Um, they're covered under the Residential Tenancies Act. They're generally private for profit and they generally provide housing only with no support to people. So it's really often, you know, in a large bedroom, there might be four people sleeping with just some chipboard or curtaining between them uh, for privacy. So... As you can see, as you move down that, um, that list, the further away you get from legislation that is specific around disability and aged care and the further you move away from commissions overseeing quality and safeguards, uh, the more vulnerable people are. The folks in supported residential services are far more vulnerable than those in RACs or specialist disability accommodation because the majority of the people living in SRSs are disconnected from their families. So they really have no one else advocating or supporting them and often their only contact with the system is um, a GP. So GPs can play a really critical role supporting people living in SRSs. Um, one of the key things is that a lot of people in SRSs would probably be eligible for the NDIS, but they haven't been supported to access that. And so a letter of support from a GP if someone is um, applying for the NDIS is a really useful um, thing that a GP could do for those, um, for those vulnerable folks. So the other thing I think that's worth knowing here as we talk with, um, with what Deb was saying is, is that notion of transmission dynamics within shared living. Um, so all of those, apart from the bottom one, the private in-home care, um, the difference with private in-home care is NDIS is now funding a lot of people uh, to have 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week support in their own homes or in their family homes if they're still residing at home with their parents. The difference there is we've been able to... Um, 
contain that so they're not sharing with any other people with a disability and we've generally got their workers coming into their home only. So we're stopping um, that cross-site transmission within the private in-home care arrangement. So that's um, been working pretty well up until now. Uh, the other thing just to be aware of is that, you know, there's been a lot of work done on the poor health outcomes for people with a disability over many, many years um, by Vic Health, by the... Um, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, and there was the terrific article um, by Professor um, Anne Kavanagh in 2017 that talks about um, that, you know, poor health is not an inevitable consequence of disability, but transforming the bad deal that people with a disability live with ultimately depends on changing society. And I know we can't fix some of these issues right now in the middle of, of a pandemic, but I think as we move forward and look at what we can do better in the future, um, they're the sort of things we need to focus on. So next slide, please. So the support available to the residents within those different types of accommodation really does depend on the type of accommodation. So um, lots of those supports, particularly the specialist disability accommodation and the residential aged care facilities and the in-home care, absolutely will have support workers being funded to come in and assist people and they'll often have um, allied health supports as well funded, so OT physio, speech, depending on the individual person's needs. And there's a lot of um, funding provided for people also to spend time out and about and in the community. Um, the supported work and education has been a real challenge in the current COVID environment because a lot of those supported employment services and or those in old language day programs that people with a disability attend between nine and three Monday to Friday have actually closed their doors as a COVID response. So people are home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's causing problems both for the person with a disability, but also for the family carers if they're living in the family home trying to support them. So we're seeing um, carer burnout. But we're also seeing that the residential services where people might live having them home 24 seven, um, is causing some real issues around um, maintenance of care and support. Some of those other service types that we talked about, like the um, boarding houses and some of the supported res residential services, in fact, don't have um, much support at all. So people are often fairly um, aimlessly wandering around those facilities um, if they haven't got any other NDIS funding or any other supports. Next slide, please. So we've learned quite a lot from the um, residential aged care facilities outbreaks. Uh, so workforce is absolutely a critical issue in disability as it is in um, aged care. So the recruitment and retention of skilled workforce is an ongoing issue. The other main issue is the fact that we don't have medically trained staff in disability services, generally speaking, unless they're you know, nursing students or GP students or allied health students. So we haven't got um, that basic training around PPE and hand hygiene and training um, and the supply has been a real issue, which I think has finally been sorted. Um, and the lack of coordination of the sector similar to RAC because there's, you know, private sector people, there's not-for-profit and government. So there hasn't been a huge amount of coordination. The other key issue is around the planning. So goals of care and advanced care planning, particularly for non-competent individuals, is a real issue. So these are folks who haven't been able to put in place a medical power of attorney because they've been non 
deemed non-competent to do that. And so um, having those conversations um, with clients and families is actually a really important thing that we need to, to do a better job. And the response has been pretty slow. So we're finally getting there. There's, um, there's a whole range of things coming out. There's now a, um, an Australian Human Rights Commission guidelines on the rights of people with a disability in health and disability care during COVID-19. So that's an August 2020 document. Um, so very hot off the press. So we're slowly getting there. Um, and um, we needed a, a rapid response earlier, I think, because the concern's been pretty significant, particularly with people watching um, what's happening in RAC. Next slide, please. So one of the key things I think um, from my perspective is that the primary care role can absolutely play um, a part in particularly health advocacy for people with a disability. They have very poor health outcomes compared to the general population. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a letter of support from a GP goes a long way when trying to access NDIS funded supports. But I think the other really key part of all of this is the um, the need for a kind of an, an occupational health sort of education and information role into the future. Again, you know, not expecting people to pick up on this now. I'm aware that people's workloads are huge, but what we could do better in the future is um, ensure that the disability workforce itself is, is better supported from an occupational health point of view um, and really looking at the overall um, improving health outcomes for people with a disability across the board and for their family carers. So we've got really poor health outcomes for family carers as well. So they're the sorts of things that we could look at into the future uh, once we're out the other side of COVID. Thank you. And Deb Friedman now talks about in-reach testing in the Bowen region. So we do have in-reach testing, which largely in the beginning was for residential aged care, but it's been used to go to people's homes where they can't easily get somewhere to have a test done. Um, I think they have gone into some disability homes before. Um, I'm just, I'm going to get those details and give them to the group. And now in response to a case vignette of a resident who lip reads and was having trouble with communication barriers due to PPE. Um, I guess one of the things that I wanted to say, because it's a very complex issue and there's no one simple um, response to it, but if you've got two people, um, it's better for one to be wearing a mask than none. So if the carer has to have the mask off so that the client can understand them while they're speaking, then I think that's what you have to do. But to have a mask on one of them is better than to have a mask on neither of them. That would be kind of my, my strategy. But I think, you know, all of the how you, how you control behaviours and how you improve the situation when people are bored and don't have other activities is difficult. And then I just saw in the chat the issue of perhaps using a face screen, a face shield, sorry, rather than a mask is, is not a bad idea, especially because they're transparent. Um, so that wouldn't be a bad idea for lip reading. So I guess you've got to use any of these things um, to get some protection for people within that home. Did you want me to say anything else, Bianca? I've got some answers to questions in the chat, but I think you might want to finish off this piece. I'll finish off this piece and then, because we will do the rapid five at the end, so perhaps we can sum this up at the end as well. Um, I'm going to throw to Jackie Pearce now, who wants to comment on um, some of the um, questions that Anna has around engagement and uh, workforce. Thanks, Jackie. 
Thanks, Bianca. I just wanted to um, say that one of the things that's working very successfully, at least in and around the Geelong region, is that where those traditional day programs or supported employment services have shut their doors and people are now home 24-7, the staff that worked with folks in those places are being redeployed into the actual houses between nine and three. So, the, the benefit of that is they're familiar staff um, working with people and um, we're also trying as much as possible to contain those staff to that one house so that they're not going across various different residential settings. Um, and that's working really well because what it's doing is preventing that boredom at least between nine and three when people would generally be out of the house. So that's one strategy that's working really well. The other thing for people to keep in mind is the NDIS is very open to doing um, rapid reviews of people's NDIS plans if the funding that they had pre-COVID is not adequate to cover their current lifestyle in COVID. I can't bring you our discussion, but there was much discussion now about in-reach testing and the quality of advice uh, that uh, families, carers, workers are provided in the instance where someone in a residential accommodation um, is, is COVID tested and the importance of providing that comprehensive advice in addition to testing. But the fact that at the moment that is a gap in service provision. GP Anna Glue provides a further case vignette, which again, I can't give to you because of confidentiality reasons, but I'd like now to leave you with this reflection as she puts to the group some things to consider about workforce. Um, and I was just also mindful of, um, I think it was Lisa Clinic's comment last week, that once they had furloughed staff in aged care, something like 40% or, or that, that had been affected by the COVID, 40% didn't want to return at all. So my questions are, how do we support these workers on an individual level? And I think um, probably what I'm doing is perhaps okay with the care plan and uh, mental health plan and psychology support and um, individual support. But how do we support this sector as a whole? Is there um, increased carer support? And Jackie has partly answered that with the um, uh, staff being redeployed from um, the supported um, workplace and activity centres. But these residents often have increased needs because of the anxiety in the community. They are also not able to contact, uh, often not able to be in touch with family and friends because of the restrictions. Um, and how do we support or try and work out to uh, manage these people to try and avoid burnout in this um, sector? Thanks, Anna. So um, in the interest of time, um, I guess we're going to pause that there. I think that this is something that I think I'd like us all to really reflect upon throughout the week. Thanks to Katrina Marta for putting a, um, a tool in the toolkit on the, in the chat. Um, I, I, you know, I think we'll be focusing on this housing, crowding and caring, and this is really raising an important issue. And I'm going to ask Deb to reflect on this in a moment when we come to the rapid fire thinking about this workforce and this system supporting our most vulnerable. But before we go there, I'm now going to um, say hello to Vinay, Dr. Vinay Menon um, and we're going to pop up a slide because I think there's an important resource that um, is worth all knowing about and Kate Graham threw this in the chat. Um, so Dr. Vinay, um, we haven't met but I'd like to say hello and thanks for coming this morning. Please introduce yourself and we'd love it if you'd let us know a bit about this service. Thank you. Yeah, uh, nice to meet you and thanks for inviting me. Um, that was all um, really fantastic. I really enjoyed listening to uh, Jackie. Thank you so much. 
Um, so I just wanted to give you guys a brief overview of this, of this program that exists to provide support to frontline health workers such as yourselves. Um, all right, briefly introducing myself, I'm a pediatric registrar and I'm working with Aspen Medical on this project. Um, basically, the Health Professional Disability Advisory Service um, was designed to help GPs, community health nurses, um, and other healthcare workers on the front line um, to access rapid, um, rapid specialist advice when tricky issues come up around managing a patient with um, disability uh, and um, a coronavirus issue. So the kinds of examples of questions we've had are, um, you know, how do I uh, approach coronavirus testing in a patient with autism? How do I um, organ organize self-isolation for a patient with intellectual disability? How do I minimize risk of infection for my patient with cerebral palsy? Those are the kinds of questions. The trickier ones tend to be in the uh, intellectual disability and developmental disability space, but um, we have specialists in psychiatry, rehabilitation, medicine, um, a couple of GPs with um, pretty extensive rehab experience um, and a pediatrician. Um, so, uh, so all you have to do is give us a call. We have call handlers that are either RNs or allied health um, who will sort of, um, and then who can then uh, escalate it to the correct specialist and get you in touch. Um, we've been getting a lot of calls from disability workers and unfortunately the Commonwealth hasn't funded us to, um, to give that specialist advice to disability workers, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so it's only sort of basically APRA regulated um, healthcare workers. So nurses, doctors, um, allied health, and we've also squeezed pathology collectors in there as well because they've got some um, tricky issues to deal with. Um, so that's the kind of stuff we can help with. We really, really encourage you call the service. It's, it's going for another three month trial. Um, and we really want to get more calls from GPs because if we don't use it, we'll lose it. And, um, and uh, some of our specialists have been able to give really, really um, useful advice. Um, so you've got the slide up there. Um, I'll copy and paste a bit more information um, on the um, group chat. Uh, um, and uh, I'll just make the extra point that this is mainly for information about advice of approaching patients with specific issues. So it's more about the, the approach to a patient. For other kinds of information around local services, home testing, respite options, that kind of thing, it's better you call the disability information line. But I'll put the information up on all those things um, on the screen for you. Um, please let me know if you have any questions and uh, please call us um, and use the service. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Menon. And we might invite you back for questions next week. I think we'll get in touch in the meantime. Um, and I noticed that Kate Graham, our editor of Health Pathways, also referenced that. So no doubt that will go up into our Westpeak Health Pathways. Um, so thank you. I think that sounds like a val very valuable service and there's lots of endorsements there in the chat. I'm now going to um, say hand over to Deb Freeman for some rapid fire answers. Thanks, Deb. Um, thanks, Bianca. So, um Jeff asked the question about the person who became reinfected with COVID-19, the case from Hong Kong. Um, my comments on this, it's neither surprising nor unexpected. Immunity to the majority of viral infections, especially seasonal ones, do not completely prevent reinfection. And after um, an initial infection, there's a waning of immunity over months and longer. Um, so I don't think it's particularly surprising. It just hadn't been described before. He was asymptomatic the second time around. So I don't think there was an enormous amount of clinical significance. But what it tells us is that infection certainly doesn't protect you from reinfection. Um, what was 
uh, one of the questions was, is it stage four restrictions and mask wearing that is containing case numbers? I think that's really the large part of what's been done, but there's also been things about redefining essential work that have probably improved the situation in, in Victoria. In terms of our testing, I think that our availability, our widespread availability of testing is probably one of the best in the world, to tell you the truth. No, we don't have isolation facilities, but we have hotel accommodation widely available, um, which is also um, different to a lot of other countries. But no, we're not in Singapore. Many ways I wish we were, but they have um, a very different societal view of compliance and they've got um, different facilities available for isolation. Um, why is New South Wales different to Victoria? What's going on in New South Wales is a very good display of what suppression looks like. It's suppressing um, outbreaks as they come up and not letting it get out of hand. What we've seen in Victoria is a second wave. Is it all about the failure of hotel quarantine? Possibly slash probably. Um, and then um, there was a question about whether or not swabbing people is an aerosol-generating procedure, and it is not an aerosol-generating procedure. I'm happy to expand on what the aerosol-generating procedures are, but testing is not one of them. I'm now going to throw across to um, Kate Graham to um, provide us some updates on the health pathways. You'll see a survey monkey link in the chat. Please evaluate us. Let us know how we can make these sessions better and put forward any questions. You know, I think we're very much puzzling at this piece at the moment. So put forward questions for next week. Um, where are our knowledge gaps? And we'll aim to address them next week. So grab that link in the chat. Thanks, Kate. So I think um, I just wanted to remind everyone about the referral pages. So we've got the links up there to St John's Transport um, for people who don't have transport in to get um, testing. Um, and we'll, we've also got the in-reach testing links there. Um, and we'll update for Ballarat and we'll provide an update on the Geelong um, testing service as well, just to reference that it is available for disability services. Um, in terms of our standard pathways, um, just the initial assessment and management and the ongoing, both of them have been flagged with the um, Disability Advisory Service um, contact details just at the top on the clinician, uh, clinical editor's note. And all have been updated to have the online notification um, form um, so that nobody has to wait online for notifications of positive cases anymore. Um, in our practice management page for COVID, we've got a drop down now, which is for management of the unexpected case in your practice, which is where you've either got um, a staff member or a patient that in retrospect didn't present for COVID related symptoms, but has now come back as positive and how you manage that. Um, there's a PPE drop-down under the information page, um, and that's got uh, the NDIS links for how you can access um, PPE for NDIS providers. Um, we've added in the aged care goals of care form under the Barwon links, under the general information, and also on our aged care page. And um, we've got our general disability support services pages up there as well. They've got COVID-related links um, and notes at the top of them. Um, and not to forget, we've got our mental health page um, for COVID. And now we've also got our clinicians' health um, pages as well, just referencing the fact that um, our own health and those of our colleagues are really important at this time. So we'll catch you all next week for the next edition. Thank you all. And we'll continue, yes, this conversation next week. Take care. We'll see you then. This series is RACGP and ACRAM accredited for registered participants. You can register via the Westvic PHN website, Project ECHO COVID-19 series. Thanks for listening. Come along and join the discussions. Thursdays, 7.30 via Zoom.